Hello and welcome to another episode of CryptoCast. I am James Burney, a financial services and fintech partner at Gunner Cook. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jenna Pache, Director of Markets Evolution, a financial innovation and market structure consultancy, and a member of the Whitechapel Think Tank. Hi, Jan, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me on today, James. So I, I think what I'd like to talk about today are CBDCs, given your, your role in, in thinking about these sorts of things. But before we go into um, that, I think it would help you just sort of outline for people as to what a CBDC actually is. Um, sure. So central bank digital currency, what are they and um, what differentiates them from the, the type of money we have today? So this is a question that um, I'm often asked um, and, and people often say, um, so central bank digital currency sounds great, but what's really the difference between that and the money that we use today? After all, when we transfer money from one bank account to another, um, there aren't wheelbarrows full of cash being exchanged at the end of the day. That money is in effect digital, isn't it? Um, because it's digitally represented, um, all its movements are fully digitized, etc. So what's the difference between that and a CBDC? Well, the key difference is that um, the digital forms of money that we have, or fiat currency that we have today, um, have evolved organically um, over decades. Um, and behind the scenes, there's an original presumption that there are actually wheelbarrows full of cash being exchanged at the end of the day. Um, and all the digital infrastructure that we have at the moment is built on top of that fundamental assumption and many other incremental assumptions over time um, that were um, introduced as a result of the technology constraints of the time. So when we consider digital currency, what we're really considering is what kind of currency and what kind of payment system would we create today using the technology that we have available to us right now if we could go back to basics and look at the actual requirements we have around how we use money, um, what payments are, what we'd like to use money as uh, for as a society um, and in terms of innovation. And what can we actually do to implement something from the ground up that is digital native? Really interesting. I think the next question that leads us on to nicely is why, why would we actually care about this and why would a country actually want to have a CBDC? given that we've already got an infrastructure in place which although which although clunky generally works so again i think it's going back to that point about you know the the, the infrastructure that we has have um is clunky um but it, it's working right now is it fit for purpose in the long run um, no, probably not. So again, everything we're doing in terms of payments innovation right now is really more around um, building on top of the infrastructure we already have. This is limiting us in terms of the innovation that we, we could achieve um, if we had a, a digital native um, currency and payments infrastructure. And if we look at emerging technologies for a start, like the the Internet of Things combined with DLT, artificial intelligence, big data. There's all sorts of opportunities there that we can't fully realize uh, because we're constrained by our existing payments infrastructure. So that's one angle, which is more around the technology drivers, and that might feel a little bit more obscure to many people. 
The second main driver, and I'd say the primary driver, is um, we can't underestimate the impact that first Bitcoin and then Libra, um, Facebook's Libra proposal, now renamed to Diem, have had unthinking on the part of um, central banks and regulators and governments globally. So when Facebook introduced its initial thinking around Libra, the whole point was actually to address a real use case, a real challenge that already exists in our existing payments infrastructure. And that was the question around cross-border payments efficiencies and peer-to-peer -peer payments. Um, at the moment, cross-border payments are hideously inefficient. They're often very expensive. There have been, um, you know, some efficiencies gained through the introduction of harmonized regulation in Europe, for example, um, which has opened up uh, competition. But it hasn't really addressed the underlying infrastructure and technology constraints. Um, and Facebook, with its user base of, you know, almost 3 billion people globally, um, and it's already extensive um, permeation into um, small businesses and marketplaces. Were it to introduce a digital currency of its own, like um, Libra slash Diem, it would immediately have massive reach. So there was instantly this recognition from central banks and regulators that there was a risk here, a risk that actually a large proportion of payments could now go through, rather than existing banking and payments infrastructure, a purely privately operated payment system. There was also a realization that the proposed um, the proposed architecture of Libra slash DM, which is um, in line with many uh, asset-backed stablecoins, um, actually poses itself um, potential systemic and potential uh, risks and risks to uh, monetary sovereignty from for the jurisdictions whose currencies are being used to back it. So, for example, if you um, if if uh, Libra slash DM is using um, is heavily backed. Uh, by uh, GBP for its um, sterling-based stablecoin, then it's going to be holding large quantities of um, sterling in reserve. And this means that uh, it's going to have the ability to actually control potentially movements in currency, depending on whether it chooses to liquidate some of those reserves in the market or not. Um, and it's also going to be taking away, again, control of visibility of those payments from the traditional oversight of regulators and the existing banking system. So all these concerns come together, um, and I'd say it's more the concerns that have driven interest on the parts of governments and regulators so far. But taken in conjunction with the um, opportunities for in innovation and um, better delivery of policy objectives as well, it's actually creates a very strong use case for a CBDC. Yes, I, I can completely see that. Um, and it'll be interesting, I think, to see how these things develop. Do you think there's going to, it's going, we're going to reach the point where it's kind of ubiquitous for all countries to be to have a CBDC? And do you think it will effectively displace the, the more traditional way people have um, used things like fiat money and the like? Do you think it is, we're going to get to the moment where every every country effectively just uses CBDCs. Um, 
I, I think unpacking your question, there's a couple of points I'd like to address there. The first is in terms of the user's perspective, so you or I, it should be fairly invisible to us, but whether behind the scenes, the app that we're using um, makes use of the CBDC or existing payments infrastructure, um, we shouldn't necessarily have to be exposed to the implementation of that. Um, we can realize benefits from it because of um, the fact that providers will be able to provide all sorts of cool and interesting new services based on the CBDC, but it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to worry about things like, will my um, fiat accounts be um, interoperable with CBDC accounts and things like that. That should, in an ideal implementation, all be seamless. Um, the second that, that I'd like to address in there is the, will, will all countries move to CBDC um, for, on their own, for their own currency? And that's an interesting question. I think ultimately uh, the way I see CBDCs is that they are a the next logical evolution of currency as we have it today. A central bank issued currency that is, let's not get into the cryptocurrency side of things right now. Um, but perhaps some countries will be first movers and other countries will be followers further along the line. Um, if we look at the way that um, currency is used globally at the moment, the, the US dollar is very much the world's reserve currency. And this doesn't just mean that it is the um, you know default payment currency and um, currency held in reserves by many banks, but it's also the currency that's used as a means of payment day to day in, um, in many countries that are not the United States itself. So if you go to um, many parts of the world, uh, many emerging jurisdictions um, around Asia and places like that, you'll actually find US dollars being used in the street. Um, and if we look at what China's doing with its CBDC at the moment, um, it's so first of all, it's DCEP, it's um, digital currency and electronic payment system um, has been designed to be, is being designed to be um, very interoperable with other forms of digital currency to have lots of on and off ramps. Um, it's certainly designed with future proofing in mind, so with support for other forms of digital currency and cryptocurrency as well. And what's interesting about that is it is it's almost positioning itself as a um, as a future backbone of a global payments infrastructure. And there's a first mover advantage to CBDC as well. So the early countries who come in and introduce CBDC and, and CBDC infrastructure that is perceived widely to be incredibly useful um, is going to gain a lot of adoption and traction for that. Um, and that means that you know, late adopters may be at a disadvantage as well. That's really interesting, and, and I think it's going to be some very, very fascinating developments moving forward between different countries. I think one, the last elephant that we always wanted to address is the fact that quite a lot of people, when they think of of blockchain being used, they think of things like block Bitcoin and stable coins. How do you think CBDCs will fit within that kind of wider spectrum of of digital? things trying to be digital currencies like Bitcoin? Um, so that's a really good characterization of it as a, a spectrum of digital currencies. Um, 
and I would say certainly at one end of the spectrum, you've got your fully decentralized um, kind of native cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether, um, which are a, I think, in a different league to the um, kind of fiat-backed um, stable coins and um, central bank digital currencies, which are further, which, which are in different parts of that spectrum. And I think there's a place for all of them. So, um, so Bitcoin um, and other cryptocurrencies have their uses, and in a way, we're still working through that collectively. Um, then you have the privately issued stable coins. The reason the privately issued stable coins exist in the first instance is because we already have a need for them. They are filling an existing need. So some of them came into existence, like Tether originally, to actually um, be a means of settling um, the payments leg of, uh, or the fiat leg of um, cryptocurrency transactions um, on Ledger. Um, without having to move currency off ledger. Um, that's also a massive um, use case in the wholesale uh, banking sector as well. Um, and so they are actually already filling a role and playing a part. On the central bank digital currency side, I think central bank digital currencies will always be important as well um, and will play a, a key role in the future because they are sovereign backed digital cur digital currencies. So with privately issued stable coins, you're always exposed to counterparty risk. Um, the risk that the issuer itself will go down, that they haven't fully backed the coin, etc. Um, and then where are you left? So um, and in part driven by, by Libra as well, Libra slash DM. Um, this is why um, many regulators are now introducing uh, tighter controls um, and prudential uh, requirements around um, stablecoin issuers um, to address some of that counterparty risk. But there's always going to be a demand for um, the other end of the spectrum, which is your central bank issued digital currencies um, that do not have that counterparty risk that are fully centrally banked back, bank backed, and that can be effectively used as a digital native form of fiat currency uh, within the existing banking and payments, um, if not infrastructure, then kind of world, I guess. And um, just to, to touch on this, because I know we're running a bit short of time, um, the, how I got into central bank digital currency and, and started um, becoming more active in, in policy advocacy around it was through my involvement in the Whitechapel Think Tank's Future of Payments Working Group. Um, we started looking at uh, the case for a UK central bank digital currency um, just over a year ago. And in December, we published a paper um, on the impact of digital currency and the future of payments, which you can find on the Whitechapel Think Tank website. Um, and then it, we go through the case for UK central bank digital currency, um, a lot of what I've discussed right now as well in terms of the background and the reasoning and rationale for central bank digital currencies in general, and also really importantly, the impact of um, CBDC on existing um, payments and um, financial uh, services, infrastructure and business models. Thank you, Janet. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. If anyone listening wants to reach out, Jana's email is Jana, that's J-A-N-N-A, -N -N 
a h dot p a t c h a y at markets evolution dot com janet it's been great to have you on absolutely fascinating thank you thanks so much for having me james it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to our latest podcast gonna cook is a market leading blockchain crypto assets and DeFi team providing legal advice across the whole of the blockchain ecosystem our members have been heavily involved in helping shape the legal and regulatory framework for blockchain and crypto assets from the start, meaning that we have an intuitive understanding of our clients' needs and can provide focused, pragmatic advice at predictable cost. For more information, please visit our website. Thank you again.